Start your electric journey right here, right now. With a Volvo XC90 Recharge, our plug-in hybrid SUV with extended range. For more everyday electric journeys on a single charge with a hybrid option for longer adventures. Contact your local retailer to book a test drive or design your own vehicle at volvocars.com US. The Volvo XC90 Recharge Plug-In Hybrid. The electric car with a backup plan. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Longest Artist Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your jeans can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. When I started trying to get pregnant, the first step seemed easy. Go off the pill and just time the sex right. But timing turned out to be really tricky. My period only came every six weeks, and each cycle, my husband and I, we'd try and try, and then wait and see what happened, and I'd get my period, and then we'd have to wait another month and a half instead of the usual month to find out if I was pregnant again. I felt like something must be wrong with my body, like maybe my body wasn't even capable of creating or housing a baby if things were off like this, which was probably irrational, but a few cycles in, I heard about this woman who could help, an acupuncturist, a Chinese woman who specialized in reproductive health. She was the real deal, I'd heard. She helped women who'd had multiple miscarriages. When I met her, she told me, you're 32, easy fertility. So I started going to her once a week. Her office was in North Philly, a really run-down part of North Philly. There was no sign on her door. There was broken glass all over the sidewalk and garbage blowing through the street. Inside wasn't much better. The doors on her treatment rooms were just boards of raw wood with round holes where the doorknobs should be. So not exactly private. I'd lie there on the table with her tapping needles into me. For every needle, she'd say, relax, please. Then she'd tap it into my skin. Relax, please. A needle in my foot. Relax, please. In my belly. Relax, please. In my scalp. All the while, she'd be trying to convince me that I should buy her cousin's house in an equally rough part of town. I never found out if it worked, if my cycle went back to normal, because before my next period even rolled around, I got pregnant. All in all, it took six months, which I now realize is nothing. So many people are stuck trying for years. People like Lisa, who we'll hear from today.
This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Lisa and her husband's baby-making struggles go way back, like over a decade back. I've been checking in with Lisa over the years to find out about her progress, and I recorded a couple of those conversations for the podcast. Just a heads up for those of you who are sensitive to stories about struggles with pregnancy, this is a story that delves pretty deeply into that topic. Anyway, um, Lisa and her husband had only been dating a few months when they started imagining having kids together. And, you know, I said, well, I'd like my kids to be Jewish. And he said, well, I'd like a Christmas tree. And I was like, great, we're, you know, and then we dated for four years and got married. A couple of years after tying the knot when Lisa's about 31, they start trying to get pregnant. They try for a year with no results. And I went to a fertility doctor to say what's what's going on, which we do. So Lisa and her husband both get tested. And I remember like seeing the paperwork that said like, Basically, my husband can make like 10 million people. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like he could create an entire universe of people. So he, he was he was good. And there's nothing obviously wrong with Lisa. She had severe cramps after going off the pill. So her doctor suspected endometriosis. That's a condition in which the tissue that normally lines the inside of your uterus grows outside the uterus. But that's not something that can be proven without surgery. And if possible, they wanted to avoid surgery. So the doctor goes ahead and starts her on intrauterine insemination, or IUI. Basically, they take the sperm, they wash it, concentrate it, and place it back in your uterus around ovulation. And I got pregnant on the very first try. The, they, they take a blood test to determine that you're pregnant, and there's a hormone level, and they monitor this level for a few weeks. And I think it was something like, you know, three weeks in a row on Monday, you would have the blood test and they would call me. And it was my birthday. And I remember my husband met me for lunch and the clinic called me and said, your numbers dropped and that's probably a sign you're going to have a miscarriage. Um, but, you know, come, come back in. So I went to the doctor and she did an ultrasound and there was this little heartbeat on the screen. And she said, well, you know, there's a heartbeat. You know, this, this, sometimes the numbers lie. And I started crying because I'd had a beer or two over the weekend. And I was like, oh, I ruined the baby. I had a beer. And of course, she was like, no, don't worry about it at all. And she said, I think she gave it maybe a 50% chance of actually being a pregnancy. So <laughs> it was like, I saw the heartbeat, but she was also like, these numbers aren't good. And then... About three weeks later, I was nine weeks pregnant. I was on my way to a job interview and I was in the airport and, you know, I just, I knew I was starting to bleed and I didn't know what to do because can, I mean, I thought, well, I could call them and tell them I'm sick, but like, if you're not hospital, like having your appendix out sick, that just seems like a really flaky thing to do on the way to your job interview. Like if I couldn't say like, I'm throwing up or, or something. And I couldn't say like, I'm having a miscarriage, because who would like apply for a job while they're pregnant? I mean, it's totally fine to but what will they think of me? I, you know, doing that. Lisa's at the gate, she has to decide quickly whether or not to go. And it just feels kind of like a light period. So she goes. The first day I was there, um, you know, I was just, I had bad cramps and I was bleeding really heavily. And so, you know, my worry was that like, 
something will just start gushing out of me, you know. But it wasn't like that. It was just like a heavy period. And I did the whole day of interviews, and it was even like going out to a restaurant with a bunch of people from the staff afterwards. And the whole time, I'm just thinking like, oh, my God, like I'm having – I can't believe this. This is really surreal. But I was just – it was felt good just that everything was under control. And – Wait, I just <laughs> – I'm going to stop you because that's like – I can't imagine that. I mean, you knew what was going on. How were you able to keep your head together enough to – you know, do what you need to do to be going through job interviews? I think part of it was that now that I think about it, I knew that that blood level was a really bad sign. And I had in my head really planned on that I was going to lose this pregnancy. And, and I don't know, I, maybe there isn't an answer to your question. I, I just think I like, it was just adrenaline and it was, you know, I, I love my work. And so it was going to be a day of talking to people about my, my work. And that was distracting in a really good way. And I had, I had been lucky enough to get pregnant on the first try and I had gotten over, I didn't get over it, but I wasn't in the mode of like grieving or anything. It was, it was all like practical management of the situation of the physical situation. And I, I do remember calling a friend actually and saying like, this is really weird. I'm here. I like, she knew the situation. I'm having a miscarriage. And, and, and then I went to the airport and I flew home and I was in so much pain that I ran a stop sign on the way out of the airport and I got pulled over. And so the, and it's nighttime and the guy comes to the window and I said, Hey, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm actually having a miscarriage, and I'm just trying to like get home. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm not paying any attention. All of a sudden, he like shines his flashlight in. And long story short, he was under some rule that if there was a medical condition, he had to call for like an ambulance. And I was telling him like, no, I don't need medical treatment. Like, there's not, there is no medical treatment. Like, I just need to go home. Like, please don't call an ambulance. Like, and there was some back and forth with his supervisor, and finally he just let me go. But and pretty much, except for my friend who I called, like I, he was like the first person I told. And, um, and, um, at that point were you like, okay, I'm going to grieve this for a while. Or were you thinking, okay, I'm going to get back on and try this again. I was definitely like, we're going to get back on and try this again. But I remember, um, I started having a ton, ton of pain, like pelvic pain. And it was just a really unhappy time because it's hard to imagine, growing like a healthy thing when you're just in so much pain in that area of your body, you know. Lisa decides to find a new fertility doctor, tries another couple rounds of IUIs. They don't work. Now, these kinds of fertility treatments take resources. Lisa is fully aware that she's lucky she's had options. Um, The next thing she tries is in vitro fertilization or IVF which is the type of fertility treatment you hear about most these days. You know, it's the one where they combine the sperm and egg in a lab and create embryos, and then they place one or more of those embryos in the uterus. Before I started all this, I always said I would never do this kind of treatment. I always thought, well, if, 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 if you're meant to have a baby, then your body will have the baby, and you shouldn't screw around with it if your body is not working, and I wouldn't go to such... Uh, drastic measures. And then once you're in it, you know, it's, it's so, it's so different. Um, just like I have to say, like until 
I had a miscarriage. I don't think I appreciated what a miscarriage meant. And I always, which is what, like, what it, what does it mean to you now? You know, it's more, I can more say what it meant to me before, which was just, well, it wasn't a person, something started and it didn't get completed, but you hadn't had it that long. So even though it's not a good thing, it's not like somebody died. (laughs) I think, I think subconsciously, that's probably how I thought about it. Um, it feels like much more of a life affecting (laughs) moment or or event than I had been able to, to, to perceive. Yeah. Yeah. I totally. And I think that, um, like, and it's something you can't or, or we don't talk about publicly. And it's, so it's not like mourning, um, a, you know, a death of a person that's outside of you, you know, like that we talk about and it's understood that people are going to be distracted from work and all of that. But, um, to have this like big momentous loss from your body, that's not something we talk about. Right. And especially when it's early like that, you know, nine weeks, nobody even knew you were pregnant. And that's why we don't tell people, right? Cause just in case. Exactly. Right. And then the flip side of that is then nobody knows you went through it and not talking about it makes you think like you shouldn't really be that upset by it. Um, But. And then how about with the IVF? Did you get pregnant again? I also on the first one. um, Okay, so it's hard. I don't know how to. I don't know how like normal people who aren't in fertility treatment do it, but I remember having a 16 week checkup where we heard the heartbeat and saw the ultrasound picture and, you know, I was starting to show and I knew that the chromosomes were good. I knew I was having a girl and then I went for my 20 week ultrasound. It was this really beautiful, sunny morning and um, it was in June and we went and I guess, you know, you're lying there on the 20 week ultrasound. And I think, I think that's the one if you're, if you're really going to see a lot for the first time. And, and, and so you have a little apprehension, I, I guess everyone does, but, um, but mostly it's just a really exciting thing. Like I'm really going to get to meet the baby in this kind of bigger way. And the ultrasound tech got up pretty early on and said, I need to go check some numbers. And she left and it's like, you know, a minute went by two minutes and I remember saying this doesn't seem right. I've never heard about people's ultrasound tech, like going to check numbers. What, what numbers would she be checking? And in my head, what had happened was that that she had found like a really severe defect and I had this, um, this feeling that I didn't expect to have, which was, well, it, it doesn't matter whatever's wrong with the baby. We'll love it. We'll take care of it. We'll deal with it. And I would not have predicted myself to have been someone who would have that thought, but it was just this sort of fierce, like, 
I, th- I guess, a maternal feeling, you know, that this, I, I, this is my baby and, and we will, we will take care of it. And, um, and anyway, a really long time went by and then the doctor came in and said, like, I'm really sorry. There's no heartbeat. And I was, I had, was not prepared for that. Even though I always think of the worst, I, I, it had not occurred to me that that was the situation. You, you felt like a mom already, it sounds like. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I had, um, I, I did. I felt like, um, there'd be times, I don't know if other people do this, but you know, where I might be at work or something and there's a like, okay, you and me kid, <laughs> we're in this, you know, like in your head, there's a little bit of, it kind of made me braver. I thought in some situations, like I'm going to handle it, kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? You want your kid to feel rest assured. I've got it under control <laughs> life. Right. And, and, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've actually tried really hard to remember some of the details of after that. But, I mean, I think I yelled and, you know, said, like, no and stuff like that. And I remember really needing to call my mom. Like, my mom can't go on thinking one minute longer that there's a baby coming. Lisa goes to the hospital and gets a procedure called a dilation and evacuation, or d Basically, it's a second trimester abortion. And she makes what she finds out is an unusual request for that type of procedure. I asked my doctor if I could be awake because the one thing that really like freaked me out was the idea of like, like having this baby inside you. And granted, it was only 20 weeks, but it did feel like a baby or half cooked baby. And, um, the idea of going to sleep and then waking up and having it been gone really just seemed weird to me. So he said I could have an epidural and be awake. And I remember the anesthesiologist was really mad at me <laughs> for some reason. He was, he was. They're always surly, aren't they? they? I don't oh, know. I mine don't was. Know. Yeah. He was just really, he looked like Larry David. And he was just like, I don't understand. You're not going to be able to like get up and walk around for four hours. And I was like, where am I going? You know, <laughs> like, and I just want to be awake. I just want to be, I want to like, you know, know what's going on. And so I did that. And I actually do think it helped. Um, I couldn't see anything. I mean, they put like a sheet and that's when I just felt like my body sucks because I remember lying there and, you know, them putting the things in and just thinking like, what did I do wrong? And I'm so incompetent. And, um, how are we ever going to be able to get this far again? Eventually, Lisa and her husband gear themselves up to try IVF again. They do two more rounds. They don't work. By now, Lisa is 38 Her body isn't responding as well to treatments as when she was younger. And the fertility doctor pretty much tells her it's time to call it quits. But Lisa and her husband still desperately want a baby. They have long talks about it, and they come around to feeling okay about having a child that is not biologically related to them. They decide to adopt, and they feel really good about that decision. But that decision comes with a whole other set of decisions, 
for starters, whether to adopt domestically or internationally. In the end, we decided we were going to adopt domestically. And I think there were like a, a number of reasons, but um, one is that it was really hard to give up the idea of a newborn baby, of starting the bonding from day one. And we knew that it would be very unlikely that that would happen in international adoption. And I had a lot of ethical concerns about a system where I wouldn't necessarily know the circumstances of how the mother came to, you know, relinquish the child. And then I had come to feel, I mean, I should say in a domestic adoption, most of the time in this country, those adoptions are not um, closed. They're, they're open to some degree. And I felt that that would be something we could be doing for our child um, to be able to tell them, you know, your mother chose us. I, I really like that idea. So, so what does that mean? Like, how do you, how do you get the birth mother to pick you? So how it works with our agency that, that we used, um, you put together, they call it a profile, you know, it's like a, a booklet. Is that what you have with you that you brought with you? Yeah, I brought it. <laughs> can yeah. we, can we take a look at it? Yeah. This is actually our, our second profile because our first one, we went so long without finding a mother that we decided to redo it. They have to yeah, put in all of these oh. pictures of themselves. <laughs> he, he had the he captioned spaghetti night. They decide yeah, to keep in the one of Lisa's husband in a tie, even though yeah, the agency yeah, is afraid it's, it's really, too formal. It's really and they have to write a letter to the birth mom, painting a picture of what life will be like with the child. Even though, let's be honest, in a lot of ways, you have no idea what that'll be like until it actually happens. And we had our profile sent out a lot but we were not chosen. There were a couple of close calls. The one that really stung started with a phone call from the adoption agency late on a Saturday night. They told Lisa and her husband there was a woman who had walked into a hospital in labor, said she hadn't known she was pregnant until then. She gave birth to a baby girl. She wanted to leave the hospital the next morning and never see the baby again. And... She had picked us, and could we be up there the next morning to get the baby? You have to, the context here is that we'd been working with this agency and going to classes and learning all about how to have this relationship with the birth mother and how crucial it was for our child to know as much as possible about where he or she came from and, you know, to get over any feelings of jealousy that we would have of the birth mom and just how, how great it would be to have this information for our kid. So, of course, we said to the social worker, oh, we're so excited and tell her thank you. But is there anything she can tell us? Like, obviously, health information would be great at the very least that so that, you know, you can better care for the child. But I just kept thinking of like, this baby, you know, and how this baby was going to have questions and I wanted to be able to answer something. And long story short, the social worker called back and said that the birth mother had been really offended by the question and had changed her mind and no longer wanted us and had picked another couple, the couple who I realized later when I looked at the website was right next to us on the page. And that was it. 
And, oh my God, we were so devastated. We, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you all the thoughts. Like, we, we screwed up. Oh my God, we did, we, no, no, you know? But, but we really thought we were just trying to be good parents. This has gone on for so many years. Ten years since she started trying, three of them trying to adopt. I've spent so much time wanting a baby in a way that is so detrimental to living your everyday life that I've worked really hard to not sort of be conscious of that wanting. What, what do you picture when you picture having a baby? It's funny. It, 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 it's, different, it's different things. Like I, I picture holding the baby and staring at the baby. I've actually imagined that quality of like, oh my God, I'll probably just stare at the baby for two hours or three hours and I won't be able to stop. But then sometimes I just imagine like walking down the street hand in hand with my three-year-old or four-year-old or five-year-old. Or I imagine driving in the car and having a conversation. I mean, so, so I've imagined a lot, but I think it, like my gut, my first feeling like where I am right now is just the, the, the holding of a baby, like the heat and the heaviness and the weight of it. So, so you still, you still don't have a baby and, and, and so where are you at with it now? So it got to the point approaching three years of waiting to adopt that it was just making us just feel horrible. And your friends ask what's going on and you just start to feel like well, we've messed up, you know, other people are getting adopted babies and people give you advice. And then it just makes you feel like very powerless. And we decided to take a break um, from waiting, which I know that seems like a really passive thing to do. But you know, they call you often, the baby has been born, or you don't have much warning. And if you can imagine just like kind of having that in your head for three years, you know, like, well, maybe we shouldn't go on this vacation or, you know, because what if, uh, what if the baby comes and that just takes a toll. So we're taking a break um, and figuring out sort of what our remaining options are and feeling like we're getting old. I recorded that conversation with Lisa in March of 2012. Nine months later, she and her husband got a baby. Hang on. I know, you're so bored of this position. <laughs> After they had decided to take a break from waiting, Lisa and her husband regrouped and started pursuing Plan C, which was to work with a gestational carrier, um, also known as a surrogate. I called Lisa on Skype when her son was about three months old. Because of the circumstances of her son's birth, Lisa asked me to keep everyone's except for her own first name private. And during our call, she did use their names. So each time she says one of them, you'll hear my baby and our surrogate or my husband. So like this, Lisa and her husband were actually with our surrogate when my baby was born. They came in to give our surrogate the epidural and her husband was there and my husband and I were asked to leave and we went and sat outside and about an hour went by and we could hear that she was in pain. And I guess that's not how epidurals work. And in the end, they, the doctor came out and he couldn't do it. He couldn't make it work. Like there's somebody in there who is suffering and I can hear her, you know, vocally and it's frightening and it's, you know, you're so worried about her. Is she going to be okay? And 
And then we knew something was going on because there was like staff running down the hall and people going into her room and our surrogate. His husband came and he said, you guys come in. And the minute we walked in the room, I, I just I just started sobbing. It wasn't even emotional for my baby. It was just so feeling terrible for her. And um, we were kind of, there was like a curtain and we were sort of like lingering back there behind the doctor. And then someone said, oh no, you guys go through. So we sat there with a full view. I mean, I don't even know how many pushes there were. There were not very many because I didn't know this about childbirth either, that I had just thought it was push, 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 you know, like during the pushing part. And I didn't realize that like you take a break, you know, and Mm -hmm. they're like, okay, you know, catch your breath. And I remember her asking the doctor if, if the, the doctor, um, could see the baby's head. I remember the doctor saying, when you push, I can. And she didn't take the break, really. She just gave this tremendous push, and I don't think they were ready for it. And it was like this waterfall. I mean, it wasn't gross or bloody or anything. It was just like this wave of liquid came out, and I saw this little head in there, and he sort of tumbled out under the table and was just lying. Like, nobody caught him. But it was it just... It was funny because I always thought um, in TV, <laughs> in the movies, I feel like you see the doctor kind of easing the head out, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> and kind of thought that watching him be born instead, it was just like gush, like, like thump. Yeah. <laughs> and there he was, like he was sideways, you know, like on his back, kind of sliding. And um, I remember um, the other thing was that. I don't remember saying this, but I guess the night before I had said to my husband, like, it's kind of a dumb thing to say, I guess, but I was like, you know, he might look really bad when he comes out. So don't be alarmed if he's really funny looking or his head is smushed or, you know, he's beat up Um, because that's how babies look when they, you know, because of my extensive knowledge of having babies, of course. (laughs) And he came out and he really didn't spend any time at all, like in the birth canal. I mean, it was just like he was out. And so he was just, he was just beautiful. And my husband said, I just kept saying, he's so cute. He's so cute. He's so cute. (laughs) Cause I just been prepared for like this, of course, who I would love, you know, my alien baby, but I was, it was just staring at him and just in disbelief, you know, before we could touch him. You, you know, last time we talked, I asked you to imagine what you thought it would be like to have a baby. And um, your answer was something like, um, I'm just going to sit there and stare at the baby all day. It is kind of true, I have to say. I, I, I know that people had said that this is like sort of a boring time. And people even, you know, made the comment after my baby was born, like, oh, well, he doesn't do anything right now and he's boring and he'll get more fun later. And I could not relate to the idea that he was boring. There was not like him just lying on the ground on his back was interesting to me. He's just so miraculous to me still. And maybe hopefully always will be. I mean, when, when you um, think about your lifetime with him, you know, in the future, like once he hits 10, 11 years old, your time with him will be longer than the time waiting. Oh, that's such a nice thought. That's really a nice thought. Yeah, you're right. 
because it's funny because when you started saying saying that just now, like you know, when he's ten, eleven, my mind was thinking that you were going to say, "Oh, you'll be in your fifties and you'll be slowing down," and reminded of the fact that you had to have him later. But I even then I was thinking like, but it had to be this way because it's my baby. I mean, that's like it's you. You're this person. You're there would have been no you without that weight. My baby is not such a baby anymore. He turned one in December, a couple of days after Christmas. My husband got to have his Christmas tree. In fact, there was one in the house where they were staying when they first got my baby. Lisa says she's come to think of it as her Christmas tree, too. I know that lots of you out there tried for ages to have a baby before you got one, or maybe you're still trying. There aren't a lot of places where you can talk about these things, and so we'd like to offer up our website as a safe place where you can share your stories of infertility or frustrations with the adoption process and bond with other people in your shoes. If you'd like to join in the conversation, go to longestshortesttime.com and leave a comment on the post for this week's episode. That's episode number 23 called The Longest Longest Time. This week's episode was brought to you with support by diapers.com. New mom Angela had to evacuate her home after it was destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. She left all of her baby gear behind and went to stay at her sister-in-law's. Diapers.com delivered everything she needed. Diapers, wipes, baby spoons, bowls, snacks, sippy cups the very next day. Diapers.com is giving away a diapering kit through us. We're calling it the Poop Prize Pack. It includes a case of diapers in the size and brand of your choice, plus a bunch of other stuff you need when dealing with poop and organizing all of your poop crap. You can enter the giveaway at our website. There are a few ways to enter. One way is to go to the comments section and tell us your best blowout story. And even if you don't win the diapers, you can still get 20% off your first order at diapers.com or any of their other sites with the code LONGEST20. That's LONGEST20. Thanks this week to PJ Vote and Jonathan Menhivar. Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. If you missed last week's Google Hangout on Parenting Hacks, it is archived on our website. I'm Hillary Frank. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. And as always, if you have a story of a surprising struggle in early parenthood that you'd like me to consider for this podcast, go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? 
This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, right. worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Start your electric journey right here, right now. With a Volvo XC90 Recharge, our plug-in hybrid SUV with extended range. For more everyday electric journeys on a single charge with a hybrid option for longer adventures. Contact your local retailer to book a test drive or design your own vehicle at volvocars.com US. The Volvo XC90 Recharge Plug-In Hybrid. The electric car with a backup plan.